Hello, everybody. Hi, my name's Guy. I uh, run a record label from Melbourne called Chapter Music with my, my partner, Ben O'Connor. Um, we acknowledge that the uh, Yolukut Willem as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. Um, the Yolukut Willem are part of the Boonar Wurrung, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors and their elders, past, present and to the future. Um, so just a brief introduction. I mean, chapter music, uh, my partner Ben and I for the last 25 years have run our record label and always had a strong interest in, in queer music from Australia and around the world. You know, we've released quite a few queer artists on our label and we've done reissues of historical uh, queer recordings from, from the 70s and 80s. Um, so, yeah, we thought we'd love to have a discussion about the history of, of queer music in Australia. And uh, I'd like to introduce some of the, the amazing speakers that we've uh, invited to take part. Um, let's start with Graydon. This is Graydon Jack on the end here. Um, Graydon was a member. Hello. Hi, how are you? Okay, thanks. Graydon, you're, you were a member of uh, the wonderfully named Clitoris Band. Indeed. Um, from Sydney in the 1970s. That's right, yeah. Um, and also a band called Sheila. Yep. Um, thank you very much for coming. Okay. I'll come back to you later. <laughs> this is Nick Henderson. Hello. Hello, Nick. How are you? I'm very well. Nick's a, a curator sound curator at the National Film and Sound Archives and a volunteer um, committee member and curator at the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives. Correct me if I'm wrong. That is correct. Um, so you've got a vast historical knowledge of queer culture here in Australia. Um, then next to you we've got Judy Small. Hello Judy, would someone like to pass you a microphone? Hello. Thank you very much for coming. My pleasure. Um, I mean, I, these are this is in my own words, obviously, but you know, feel free to to introduce yourself if you're <laughs> up for it. Um, so Judy's a songwriter, a performer, and a federal circuit court judge. Yes, but I am not here today in that capacity. All right. <laughs> Judy began performing live in the late 70s and released your first album, A Natural Selection, in 1982. Um, Judy's one of our best-known openly queer performers um, in Australia and around the world. Um, Depends who you talk to. <laughs> one thing I've learned is that you're only famous if people know who you are. Well, I know who you are. I think a lot of people here know who you are. Um, songs like Lesbian Chic and Influenced by Queers... Um, I think we heard one of those just before. Um, it's an honour to have you here today. Thank you very much for coming. Cathy Sport, to Judy's left. Hello. Hi, Cathy, how are you? Very good, thanks. Um, so you drew on your own personal experience as a sound engineer and a roadie uh, and, a, I mean, a musician too for, 
For not a musician, no. Not a musician, okay. No. Um, for but if you can't be in the band, you can hang around with the band. <laughs> so this is for women's ba- uh, music, lesbian bands and women's groups, feminist bands during the, the 1980s. So you drew on that experience to, to complete a PhD a couple of years back. I did. Called Women's Music in Australia. Yes. Um, and you are also a volunteer at the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives with Nick. And working on some archival film projects. Thank you very much for coming, Cathy. No um, worries. And Gavin. Hello. Nice to meet you. <laughs> um, you too, Guy. I've been dancing to your remixes for many, many years. And your own productions. Uh, I mean, for me, you're best known for the Yotu Yindi Filthy Luca remix of Treaty, which was a huge smash you know, in the early 90s. Yeah, I'm most celebrated for that, I guess. It's, it's, it never went away and, yeah, we've done some stuff recently with it. So, yeah. You ran the, the Razor record label. Yep. Which recently re, reactivated. We remixed Treaty f- for the 25th anniversary and now, like, the band's back together uh, in, in a new incarnation and I'm actually in, in the band now. Oh, amazing. And we've been doing some high-profile gigs and we're doing the Commonwealth Games soon. Ooh. Yeah. That's so, it. yeah, that's good. And also ran uh, queer nights, club nights, monthly clubs, famous, quite famous ones, Tasty, where the, the kind of infamous 1992 club raid That happened. raid. Um, and also Savage and Temple and Poof Doof. Poof Doof too, yep. So, yeah, thank you very much to all of you for coming. It's a really great assemblage of people with different uh, experiences and walks of life. I'd like to start maybe by uh, asking... Um, what your first experiences of openly gay, lesbian, queer music in Australia was? I mean, were, were, you the first, did, were you the first to do it before anyone else did it? Or was there someone else that inspired you? Um, I guess this music, this question will probably start with, the, the, with Judy and Graydon, who were both active performers. And both in Sydney. In the 70s, yeah. Um, for me, it was Robin Archer, okay. <clears throat> who was the first, I think, openly gay performer. But that wasn't the only music that we listened to because there was, uh, and I note that she's here today, although it wasn't a gay song, we really loved Girls in Our Town because it was one of the first times we'd ever heard music about our lives. And, uh, and the great Margaret Roadnight is sitting right up the back there who had the hit version of that song. In the 1970s. Um, so that's what it was for me. But Robin Archer was the first one who uh, was openly gay on stage, singing about gay stuff. Fantastic. And... Um, <clears throat> difficult for me to answer that question, in that when I first started playing music with other lesbians... We weren't really... We'd sort of... We were part of the drop, dropped-out version of... Like, we weren't part of anything. We had <laughs> removed ourselves. So, in that sense, I didn't... I wasn't really that aware of um, who, who else was out there, other gay musicians out there. Um, I mean, I was aware of Judy and Margaret. Um, but, you know, it's like... <clears throat> and Robin Archer, too. 
But basically, we, we just all started playing together and didn't even really think of ourselves as being um, lesbian musicians. We just were, you know, women who hung out together and suddenly realised we could actually play music together as well as whatever else. And um, so that's how it started for me. Fantastic. <laughs> I mean, but that kind of means that you were starting from a, a year zero, you know, a place with no, no history. And so the, yeah. the courage that it... I mean, for all of you, obviously, the courage that it takes to, to, to make music and to be involved in music as openly queer performers and artists and producers and, you know, that, you know, where does, you know, where does that courage come from? When, you know, obviously it's hard in 2018 to, to come out, you know, for a lot of people, but in the 70s and the 80s, you know? Yeah, I think just being a, a woman who wanted to play music and didn't have a really a musical background, like, I think that was what was good for us that there were a few women in our band who never played before. You know, so it was like, it just gave an opportunity, in a way, that for women to actually have a go. So this that was, wasn't that easy either. And this was pre, pre-punk for you too. It was like 1975 or yeah. something like that, wasn't it? So it wasn't like you had that... But the thing that we had, I think, that the men at that time didn't have was we had the feminist movement. Uh-huh. And a lot of the women's performers um, came out of the feminist movement and had that uh, support behind us. Um, so I think that was, that was sort of where a lot of that stuff came from. But as you say, a lot of it was really organic. It was women sitting around playing music. Um, yeah. Fantastic. And, and around um, in the mid-70s, uh, I think the impetus of the women's movement... Um, um, created a, a demand for women or female performers. So um, events like women's um, liberation marches and rallies, um, there was a high demand for female performers. Um, so I think that gender and sexuality was really doubled for uh, women's, women's performance. So, but the idea um, that feminism really created uh, the impetus and that the idea that women can do anything... And I think that that was a really important kind of um, idea for women to uh, get up and perform, maybe for the first time. Can I just say one thing about that? That There seemed to me to be two things happening around that time. There were women who were gay playing music, whether or not that was gay music, and usually it wasn't. The openly gay women were singing love songs. The feminist women were singing about being gay. And for me, uh, any... Uh, flack that I got in the 70s was not about me being gay, it was about singing about it. And it wouldn't have mattered, I think, had I been straight and singing about gay stuff. Um, it was the singing about it that people didn't like. Was that within queer communities to, as well or was that from, from the outside? Well, see, I, I, no, it was more in the folk community, which is where I come from, um, and uh, people would just sort of do this whenever I, I sang um, a song about gay rights or gay relationships or whatever. That's that's. They got over. That's it. been my experience as an occasional songwriter playing a, playing gay songs to people. Yeah, you just you can <laughs> hear the audience respond in a slightly uncomfortable way. That you know the straight couples, you know the the boyfriend starts kind of looking at his watch and you know heading for the door, going to the bar to get another beer. Um, what about in the dance world? Like the were there queer inspirations you know, for you, Gavin? I guess so, yeah. Um, you know, the, uh, way back, 
Look, I started... I, I, just before I talk about the dance floor, per se, I was hanging out and um, you, you mentioned this name to me that you wanted to touch on this particular character. His name was Troy Davies. Will I go into him now or did oh, you have something... Yeah, I would love to hear about him. Well, Troy... I met Troy in 1980 and Troy had... There was a documentary recently about Troy made by Richard Lowenstein called Echo Homo because he was... Uh, well, I guess you could call him a Melbourne cult hero. And he did a lot of stuff, he, like a hell of a lot of stuff. He was involved in entertainment, but very, very underground. And um, knowing him and his sidekick, George Huxley, uh, who was a cabaret performer as well. Well, he was a cabaret performer. Troy was uh, everything. Uh, he made a record with Michael Hutchins and, and Bono playing guitar. Yeah, I mean, yeah. when I say Troy was involved in everything, he, 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 he was the shit. He, as they say, he knew so many really full-on um, powerful entertainers and people in the entertainment industry because of his his perspective and his ideas, and um, so they drew on on his mind and his his personality to create many things. So he was some kind of inspiration for you. Oh well, that's why I bring him up mm. in the context of your question because he he made me feel cool about. Um, putting myself forward as someone who wanted to be a DJ, which was in 1983. And the moment I did that, because, of my, because I knew him and, and people in the scene, which was like the Crystal Ballroom in St Kilda in the very early 80s, lots of bands and stuff. Yep. So with the cool musicians and, and like-minded people all coming into the clubs that I started, it all spun off. But in terms of gay artists... Obviously, um, Bronsky beat. I think, was that 83? Oh, around then, yeah. I think it was very early and very obvious, you know, with the video and the bashing and, uh, you know, the small town boy. That, that actual subject matter was very, okay. But I did also want to mention someone else, and I don't know if he's actually gay, but he was very much like a David Bowie kind of spin-off, Jeff Duff. Oh, yes, from Cush. Cush, yes. and then he did solo things, That's living right, on yeah. Easy Street. Uh-huh. And he was quite outrageous, and I think that was 75. I've read an interview with him where he says, everyone thinks I'm gay, but I'm not, <laughs> which is <laughs> disappointing, what... but he was, yeah, an absolute camp Thank icon. Thank you for answering my question. But he was very, um, you know that um, album cover, Pinups, where Bowie was very feminine rather than Aladdin Sainish. You know, Jeff Duff was like that. So just seeing someone like him on... Television on Countdown or something like that in the seventies, you know. Well, I I, I I just presumed he was gay, and I I guess subconsciously because I was actually quite closeted for a while, even though I hung out with I, people. I, I, w- I was open with my friends, but not with my family. But sure, anyway, sure, sure. <laughs> I do I do go on. Well, one one thing I wanted to touch on that we was raised before was the difference between. The feminist movement and its impact on, on on queer music, queer songwriters in Australia, and and what what men were doing at the same time, because because there's so few, so much you know, less music for me as a kind of person who searches for for old records. There's, there's so many fewer records made by men that are openly gay from Australia from the 70s and 80s that I can find. Whereas you know, yeah, the 
women's music was much more organised. One of the things at the time, looking at the early gay liberation movement, um, for example, in Melbourne, uh, they had their, their fundraising, the, the reason why they were doing things. I mean, they, they were doing dances and there were bands. It wasn't DJs. Um, so, but, you know, they had um, Little River Band playing in its immediately previous incarnation of Mississippi. Um, so the Melbourneian receptions, which is underneath the Block Arcade, which is where they did a lot of their dances. Earlier on, they were at Melbourne University where they started off. Um, so at this time, you're, you're seeing, I guess, the kinds of bands that they were, they were, they were booking for there during that period. Um, you know, there wasn't the, that kind of same... You know, there wasn't the similar kind of gay performers or, um, you know, there, was, there certainly was women's bands, if you look, uh, who were performing at those gay liberation events there from in, in Sydney, in Melbourne, if you move forward. Even the first kind of um, dance after the first Mardi Gras or second Mardi Gras, uh, it was a women's band. So, like, a band like Clitoris Band or Judy, you might have performed at a, at a gay liberation Event, but in, in for the male version was Little River Band. It's <laughs> it's not not quite the same. So, yeah, what was? And, but there were also um, in the before that there were not openly gay. But I mean, they've always been gay performers. Let's face it, we know that. Um, I don't know if you know this though, that the top-selling single in Australia in 1961 was uh, sung by a woman who is gay. But nobody knew that, not and they Betty, probably still don't. Not Betty McQuaid? No, not Betty no. McQuaid, no. Um, and I'm not going to out her now because I don't know if she's out and it's not my, pro- my, my, my business to of do course, that. Of course, of course. But they've always been gay performers. Um, you know, I mean, John Michael Howson, come on, you know. Ian Meldrum himself, Molly himself. Exactly. Um, was pretty open about it. So, you know, they, they, were, they were there in terms of the men and the women... But it wasn't until the 70s and the women's movement came along that I think we felt safer, safe enough to come out. Well, yeah, I've gone back and found one record from 1957 or something by a man who lived in Australia, but I think he was from England. It's called John Olday. And he put out a record on a Melbourne label. It's called Gallows and Roses. And it has a song called Fraternisation Song about having, having a relationship with a, army, a guy from the German army while he was... You know, a, a teenager. And it's really open. It's like, you know, I loved him. You know, I hated him during the day and I loved him at night. And, you know, he took my hand and we fraternised in the bushes. And this is 1957. But that's the earliest and then pr- pretty much the only thing that I've been able to track down until the 70s. That's a pretty amazing thing to find, though. I don't have a loose. copy of it yet. I wish, yeah, if anyone's oh, okay. sitting on a copy of it, I've just found it on the internet. And I think that what you've raised there, Guy, is the histories um, of reading between the lines. So I think that, you know, queers have had a long history uh, when uh, it was either criminal to be gay, um, so it was illegal to be gay, or it was just not on, you know, to come out. It wasn't safe to come out. But we have a long history of reading between the lines, and I think and finding also, each other. One of the things is that, you know, if you're looking at the Australian um, recording industry, you know, ours certainly started much later. We didn't get to really have a local recording industry until the 1920s and then, you know, mid-1920s and there wasn't actually much being produced locally. What was 
produced and pressed in Australia was largely from masters overseas. Um, so when you see the earliest recordings, the kind of musical recordings, music hall recordings from the 19... Uh, you know, before 1910 and into the 1910s uh, and 1920s, most of those recordings were done in Britain uh, of Australian performers. And, you know, a lot of that tradition, the kind of... the you, you see a lot of the comedy coming out and there's certainly a lot of innuendo. But, and there was a lot of cross-dressing in the context of music hall and those theatrical performances. So you do see some of it in there. But um, I guess, you, you know, coming forwards, and I, I mentioned before, uh, masculine women, feminine men, and uh, the wonderful... I mean, that was, that was first recorded in 1926 in America, and it wasn't... Um, I, 1980... I'm not sure when Margaret's version was. <laughs> 78, 80... So we're back to Margaret Road Night again, 78. Um, but you don't have the, I guess, in a similar, like doing, doing covers or having a lot of that, uh, those, uh, I mean, that wasn't written um, by a, a kind of a camp queer person, but, you know, the, I guess the, the re-performance has been the, the, the queering of that narrative. Well, yeah, I mean, Australia's got this, you know, larrikin culture, supposedly, and... and you know, a combination of intense, intense kind of conservatism, but look, then things like Auntie Jack, you know, and Reg Livermore, you know, that you know, really colourful, over-the-top kind of campness. Um, yeah, and I suppose, and Jeff, Jeff Duff from Cush, and yeah, some of that must have, you know, just opened the eyes of, of budding young, you know, kids, seeing that there are other possibilities. I'd forgotten about Reg Livermore. My mother loved him and took me to every one of his shows. And he is gay. Yeah, yeah, he is, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, um. yeah. <laughs> what about the music industry as a world? I mean, getting a record deal? Well, no one was knocking down our doors to get us on their labels, I can tell you that. Uh-huh. Um, I, uh, the way I got into recording was that I did a performance in Sydney one night and a friend of mine said later afterwards we went out for coffee and he said, well, when are you going to make your first album? And I said, oh, I don't know, when I get the money. And he said, how much do you need? And I said, oh, probably about $10,000. And he said, okay, we'll make it for you. And he got a group of people together who some of whom were my friends, some of whom were their friends, and uh, there were about a dozen of us. They called themselves Good Things Enterprises, as in good things come in small packages. Um, and over a year, we did things like have car rallies and wine bottlings and concerts, and they raised the money for my first album. And that was an enormous boost because it meant that I didn't have to pay it back. So it was a real kickstart to my professional career um, because most people borrow if they're doing it independently. I did then have a, um, a contract for a very short time for distribution with CBS, but Ooh. they uh, did want me to tone it down a bit and I just said no in the end. Could you recount what that conversation was like at the CBS offices? It was just, this isn't working for either of us, is it? And uh, they said, no, not really. And I said, you don't really know what to do with my music, do you? And they said, no, not really. And so we said, okay, well, let's amicably stop this. Okay. Yeah, because Crafty, it was Crafty Made. Crafty Made. That was was my label, yes. And the Stray Dags. 
um, a fantastic Sydney band that, that Kathy, you were involved in. Self-funded. Yeah. Do it yourself. Totally. And so, so were all of them. Was there any... With, with, with Clitoris Band or Sheila, was there any aspirations yeah, um, to make a record? What can I say? You're under documented. Um, government funded some of it, I think. Um, but um, <laughs> unknowingly. Um, we just loved playing music and we didn't really think about things like recording, although, you know, Looking for a Garden, that um, album was um, um, produced and recorded everything by Penn Short, really. And that was just done in the country. And that was a mixture of some women who'd been in clitoris, some from Sheila. And um, we just... Penn had a, an eight-track system that she'd set up in her bedroom. And um, we just had fun just uh, doing that, really. And Yeah, that's a great record. I mean, I've brought along a lot of the original records that we have... You know, if anyone wants to come and look at some record covers, of, and I've been playing, Ben and I have been playing them, obviously, earlier. Yeah, there's there's a song called Keep On from um, the faggot, Pufters, Faggots, Witches and Dykes movie uh, yeah, yeah, that yeah. I think people yeah. from Clitoris Band and Sheila were involved in, and that's yeah. like a two-minute gay anthem. It's like, it's none of your <laughs> fucking business what I do in bed. And, yeah, at least that was recorded and it's on yeah, the... Yeah, I think that, that film is being relaunched. Cathy, do you know much about that? There's a screening in um, Sydney on the 25th uh, of this month to, um, to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Mardi Gras. And there's follow-up screenings in Canberra and Brisbane as well. Um, so, and, and hopefully, Melbourne. Uh, well, I'll let you know. Um, so, yeah, what about... Gavin, we were talking yes, just guy. before we stuck, you know, sat down here about you know, how, how dance music came to kind of be like the catch-all for, for queer culture, you know, nightlife in, a, in Australia and probably the world. I mean, do you remember a time when that started to happen? I mean, I guess most, there's, you know, these days there's people that wouldn't go to see a, a folky queer singer, there wouldn't be people who go to see a rock band, but there's probably, they'd all go to a dance club or, you know. They did. Um, there was, yeah. <laughs> what, what's interesting is... Maybe I'm wrong. Sorry. <laughs> when club culture, look, let's face it, in Australia, throughout the 1980s, club culture was either really underground or really mainstream. One or the other. There wasn't a lot in between. DJs were picking up on... Um, cool underground music, um, but not necessarily knowing how to present it in their normal clubs, like, say, at Chasers and stuff, not until late, late 80s. So, um, having said that, I recall in the late 80s, perhaps, like, 88 might have been my first awareness of it, there were uh, parties called Rawhide. Do you know what years... You know, it started in the early 80s and it was the first was it early warehouse party that started uh, by the Victorian AIDS Council as a fundraiser. I think okay. it was actually 1982 was the 82. first one. Um, you see, now I'm, I'm embarrassed because the thing is I, I was working in, in the straight nightclub scene. I, all of my staff running the clubs were gay, so we attracted um, cool lesbian and gay men would come along. They'd feel comfortable and, and so it was mixed 
my clubs were always mixed and I think that's why they had an influence. But I um, didn't start becoming more aware of things until perhaps 87, 88 with the Rawhide Party. So I started to go to them. They were pretty much men. I think they were not men only by rule but men, leather and all that kind of stuff. And so by the time... I became more well-known in the 90s as a DJ promoter. I started working with the Also Foundation. And that's, to me, when uh, the full communities em- embrace these events and you'd get ten or 12,000 people on the, at the docks. Uh, at, Amazing. Of all different walks of life and ages, the common denominator is that they're all gay. And it was extraordinary. And I know that my success as a DJ there, because I did it for years was that I, because of my, the clubs I had always attracted all sorts of different types of people as well because it was about the music, not about a scene. Sure. So I catered to the community rather than, um, you know, whatever, like a fluffy gay dance music enthusiasts, you know. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> I'm not trying to, like, denigrate other people. No, but of course. Yeah. So the, but but th- those parties were massive and, and very important. There's a lot of criticism given to DJs who just played um, music that, didn't, that, that they couldn't relate to as a community. Yeah. yeah. Sure, sure, sure. I was just going to comment slightly just to, I guess, in terms of pushing it back a little in terms of gay DJs and that scene, um, probably in Sydney, uh, particularly with Stranded, um, but even Patches, DJs like uh, Stephen Hawkins, Bill Morley... Uh, and I guess a, a number of those other DJs who came in uh, and started performing with uh, the party, party two, party three, and I guess the, the, the first kind of Mardi Gras after parties, which started from 82 onwards, um, the warehouse scene and uh, rap parties coming into the Horden years in terms of the late 80s and, and in Melbourne as well, both in Sydney and Melbourne, warehouse parties were initiated within the queer community um, before they expanded more broadly. So were there live artists performing at the early Mardi Gras after parties? There were. There was women's bands performing at the yeah. early Yeah, and party. then it just gradually morphed into... I guess Kylie might, you know, would still perform. But Kylie, Kylie performed at Mardi Gras, I think, in, uh, the first time in 95. OK. But, you know, 94... <laughs> oh, thank you, Kathy. But what I, I was actually... Um, as you say that, Nick, I was going to um, expand on, on what I was trying to point out about the gay dance parties. I mean, that, that was pretty much at what we would call mainstream, you know, those also parties. Mm. And Sydney was ahead of us in terms of the big mixed gay dance parties in the 80s. Alkins himself, I think, is about... He's my age, but he, he was DJing in 79, 70, 77, he started like 77. a 17-year-old. Yeah, he, he's our, he, he, you know what, he's, he's the hero of the, not just gay DJs. No, I think also that kind of birth of disco in, in Sydney club culture in some ways. Um, and, you know, and his hero, who was Bill Morley, in terms of kind of the mixing. They, the and they were remixing mainstream music as well. Robert Rassick. Yeah, the club scene wasn't, you know, it was shit, the Sydney club scene, but the the dance party scene was amazing. And so what, I'm not just saying that because... No, I'm a, they had I'm people like Grace Knight. They had, you know, they were bringing in huge <laughs> international acts as well. Yeah. Um, it wasn't just... Grace Jones. Grace Jones. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> one thing I do want to touch on is that, I mean, I'm, I hope I'm not being presumptuous if I say that, you know, 
as a as a panel, we're kind of representing the 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 L and the G out of the LGBTIQA plus. That's all there was. Community. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I guess, I mean, that that was the question. I mean, was was the gay world a, a trans inclusive space? You know, were the people when you know, were the you know, people from other cultures, you know, were there, were there indigenous people that were part of this community? Were there, you know, yeah, how, how interconnected was it all? I will, but you... <laughs> well, I was just going to say, I mean, there's been a lot of things that I'm thinking, uh, thinking about, and I was just looking around the audience and realising that maybe um, quite a few of you don't have any real sort of sense of the histories that we're talking about, um, for example, before I answer the question about inclusiveness, um, the women's band, um, the, the women's bands, the all-women bands that we're talking about created a, a women's music scene between roughly 1975 to the end of uh, the 80s. And so Clitoris, that, uh, the band that um, Graydon was in, was one of those first uh, all-women bands that performed in 1975. Um, so she was really leading the charge there. Um, and uh, and the, a lot of those women's bands played at women's uh, only dances and that was terribly exciting for lesbians. Um, maybe not so exciting for gay men. <laughs> but, but I think that... You know, in contrast to the gay, big rave dances and the discos, were the women's the women's dances, um, and they were going all throughout this. You know, from the mid seventies throughout the eighties, and that. At the, at the dance parties, but at the women's dances that I'm talking about, women bands were playing their were they were playing their own often covers and original music. Um, so I just wanted to fill that history out a little bit, and that then segues back into your question Thank you. about That's really inclus helpful, yeah. inclusivity, and that um, the trans debates really and the trans debates around space and inclusion really started to fire up in the early 90s. So I think that from a perspective on the women's dances and that space that I'm talking about, that what I would um, call that a lesbian or a lesbian feminist designated space. So women bands played in feminist designated spaces and non-feminist designated spaces. So they played in women's dances but they also played in straight pubs as well. And there was a lot of reclaiming and, um, and claiming of space um, as an interventionist uh, political sort of strategy. Um, but the women's music scene was particularly homogenising so there was not... It was very white and um, it was not representative of... ..or necessarily inclusive of, um, of people of different colour or Aboriginal people. And so I just really wanted to make that point. It was really um, not a history that I'm particularly comfortable with... ..but it's very difficult to find um, anecdotal stories otherwise to that. Yeah, that's really interesting... Does anyone else have anything to... Oh, I was just going to say briefly on the dance music side, I guess in, in a similar way, it was a fairly masculine space, I think, for quite some time. 
I think, you know, certainly you get into the Miss Wicked parties and others uh, in the late 1980s, early 90s, and uh, then on the other side and other parties in Sydney uh, where you've got a lot of female DJs and explicitly. Um, I think, you know, looking at the, the kind of performance context more in terms of drag... Um, you, there was a little bit more mix than there was, but certainly not a great deal. If you go back earlier, I guess, if you go to the 1960s and 70s in, um, I guess, the more um, uh, older forms of, of, of drag, you know, the, you know, the lay girls um, and their ilk, which largely performed in straight venues. They weren't really queer venues. Uh, so lay girls was principally for heterosexuals. Um, and certainly moving into the kind of um, scenes uh, around the RSLs that they toured and others, they were heterosexual venues. Um, so a lot of those trans spaces, there were certainly other spaces, um, like the Taxi Club or others that were mixed venues, um, but they didn't have the same kind of music culture, certainly not from the live music scene, or less so at that time from the, from the I guess, the, the, the club music scene as well. So... There was there were spaces, but um, I think the musically it wasn't a, a kind of a informing context. And if I can just make one more point there, because um, you've also just reminded me that the women's music scene was very much a live music scene. Yeah. So my research, I found over 120, more than 120 women bands, like all women bands, between 1975 to 1990, but very few vinyl records and cassettes. About four vinyl records or albums. Um, so Stray Dags, Lemons Alive went to the top of the independent chart in 1983, um, which was pretty amazing at the time. Um, but there were only four um, records made and eight cassettes. So very few recordings for a very high number of women bands. In 1976 in Sydney, um, there was a concert that I think um, changed things a lot. It was called the Floozy Music Concert... And it was in the Lower Town Hall um, in Sydney. And I played at it. Graydon, I think, I think Glitteris or Sheila played at it. And it was the first time I'd ever played to an all-women's audience. And it was the first time they'd been this sort of mainstream, large venue for music that was to be listened to rather than danced to for women. Um, and that was a really... For me, that was really important. I don't know how important it was to anyone else, but it was really important to me um, because it meant that I was... I, from that moment on, I felt part of a women's and music community that was different to the folk community that I was singing in at the time. Well, yeah, there were... You know, I've read part of your PhD and I've done my own research. There were hundreds of bands, the Shameless Hussies, you know, there was... The Ovarian there Sisters? Stray Dags, the Ovarian Sisters. Toxic Shock. Toxic Shock. Foreign Body. Cunning Linguists. Cunning Linguists. Yeah, and it's very sad to think that so many bands performed, they mostly wrote their own songs, and then they disappeared without leaving too much trace of their existence. I, mean, I guess that's an archivist's question, Nick. And, and Graydon, what... I just wanted to add to that... Um, yeah, I left Sydney, basically, in um, 77 and went bush. And then, you know, quite a long time later in the 90s, we, we had a women's band going up in the country. You know, like, it sort of was always something that we loved to do. And, you know, there was uh, a couple of uh, women from Clitoris 
you know, like 25 years after or something. Wow. We were, we were still trying to play music together and, and enjoying it. So it's and we'd play at the local kind of, you know, um, dance that was happening in the, in, the, in the town, you know, like so, um, yeah. So that's a long-lasting uh, relationship, <laughs> over 25 years. Yeah. Well, yeah, now I have some tapes that have double J, like live studio recordings of of Sheila and, and live tapes of clitoris that you've passed on. So, you know, with preserving the stuff is really important. And, and Nick, you know, how do you go about, you know, documenting and preserving Australian queer music history? Sure. Um, I guess uh, I do that both in my, um, my day job at the National Film and Sound Archive and in my volunteer capacity. Um, so I guess, you know, we are talking about um, material, particularly in the context of, say, the master recordings, if we're talking about uh, magnetic tape, quarter-inch, or we're talking about cassette tape, which uh, degrades. So from, say, uh, an archival and a preservation perspective, um, you're talking about material um, uh, which needs to be, uh, you know, digitised and transferred, and you're talking about material that is particularly susceptible to humidity and other things. Thankfully, quarter-inch and cassette tapes, um, there's enough equipment uh, at the moment to certainly preserve that, but for a lot of specialist uh, things like multi-tracks, one-inch, two-inch tapes, um, that's much harder too and it's a much more specialised and much more expensive. Um, and, you know, for uh, an organisation like the National Film and Sound Archive, we have the capability to be able to do a lot of that work um, because we've been accumulating equipment for 40 years um, and engineers who can maintain them. But it's certainly, you know, it, it does... Uh, take a lot of time. So, uh, so the National Film and Sound Archive is its focus is Australian music, and we have a, a huge volume of recordings uh, going back to wax cylinders all the way through. Obviously, we don't unfortunately have uh, queer music on wax cylinders, um, but we can arrange that at some point. Um, but uh, you know, th that's the focus there. Um, within the context of say the uh, lesbian and gay archives, that's more expansive and social. So it's about also the objects and. Uh, the social scene, it's about the photographs of the venue. So, you know, having photos of places like uh, Ruby Reds, uh, Lesbian Bar in Sydney, or having the photos of the dance parties and the, and, and the oral histories as well. Um, so it's a, whole, it's a whole range. There's a, quite a bit of work and, and you know, as an archivist or as a curator is, is a bit different from being an uh, audio engineer and knowing about how um, to... Uh, how that recording was first made and how you can, you know if you need to remaster or do anything in, in that context, which is more Cathy's area. Well, yeah, there's a, there was a documentary aspect to your PhD, Cathy. Is that something that's got scope to actually become a, just, you know, something public-facing? Are you going to release a documentary about the Australian women's well, music that, scene? That one's still in the pipeline. <laughs> but um, I think that, you know, what this also touches on is the importance of oral histories... Um, and also um, how the accessibility, like making this music accessible. Um, so obviously Nick's just been sort of um, talking about digiti the digitisation process and how the internet does allow that accessibility because I, I think for a lot of women's music it, it hasn't been particularly accessible on a broader to a broader I mean, audience. I could tell you, like, I mean, even this week, earlier this week, um, I, I did a blog... Um, uh, inspired by Cathy's um, 
uh, research and I was able to talk to a number of uh, bands. I was able to talk to someone from uh, Lavender Blues um, about their release um, and uh, they said that was uh, okay to put the recording online so I put it as part of this blog post and got contacted by from Western Australia from... Um, uh, from a, uh, an, a radio station wanting to play this track because they can't download it off our SoundCloud. Is that the um, that's <laughs> is that Lesbian Nation? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that. No, actually, it's Lavender Blues. The actual song Lavender. Oh, Blues. the song Lavender Blues. Okay, wonderful. Although yeah, that's obviously a, Lesbian Nation is a fantastic. So that's probably the first openly gay record. Well, le- oh, probably. Uh, Post post Stonewall, you know the 1978 Lavender Blues album um, has an, some amazing songs on there. Yeah, and Alex Dobkin was in America was very much part was very much at the forefront of bringing lesbian music um, out there. Who was that? Sorry, Alex Dobkin. Oh, of course. Mm. Yeah, what can you say about Alex? Oh, Alex is a phenomenon and a force of nature, and she still is. Um, she. Uh, That's the Lavender, was, Lavender she, Jane. Yeah. Lavender Jane. Yeah. That's right. Lavender, it was called Lavender Jane Loves Women was the name of the album and it had some overtly lesbian material on it that was seriously political. It wasn't just fun. Um, at that time, there were a whole lot of women in the United States writing about being lesbians. Um, there was Meg Christian, for instance. Um, there was Chris Williamson, although Chris was more in the love songs camp and it could have been male or female, but Meg Christian was, ob- was openly a dyke. And Alex Dobkin was absolutely openly a dyke as part uh-huh. of Lavender Jane Loves Women. And we were listening to all that music. But we were also listening to people like Holly Near, who was more in the folk sort of area. And those two things became very separate in the United States in a way that they didn't hear. Um, feminist folk music here and women's music didn't separate, probably because there's not enough of us to have two totally separate scenes. But in America, they did separate. So that, um, you know, uh, famous international uh, feminist folk singers who were straight didn't get, didn't get women's music festival gigs. Right. Um, that sort of stuff went on. It was, there was a, a, quite a separation. But it's, and it's, there wasn't here. It's fair great. to say, though, that you were listening to these records from, over, from America... And they were influential and inspirational. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ode to a Gym Teacher. Yes. That's a Meg Christian song, Ode to a Gym Teacher. Every lesbian of my age knows it. <laughs> um, one of the other things is um, it's at this point that you start getting uh, gay radio programs. Um, so, late, so particularly from, say, 1979 onwards. Uh, so... Uh, there was at one point in the early 80s, there were 16 gay radio programs around Australia. Um, and, you know, if you listen to, say, Gay Waves at 2S, uh, 2SER or if you're looking at the Gay Liberation Radio down here, um, so 3CR, one of the founding part, um, uh, groups as part of that collective was uh, Melbourne Gay Liberation. Um, and so if you, if you start seeing the programs and the, the records that they're playing, one of the things that, you know, you s- start getting this mix, um, you know, you can go through all of the... They were playing the women's music, they were playing straight ags, they're playing, you know, a lot of things that are, you know, it's, it wasn't easy to get a hold of, um, and as well as the international stuff. So they're playing um, Lesbian Concentrate. Um, That's playing the... Uh, American lesbian label Olivia Records, Olivia Records. compilation Absolutely. album. They're, they're, they're playing. They're also playing popular music as well. So they're playing a whole range of stuff. Um, a lot of you know, um, oh, who was that German singer? 
Um, Big crazy early 80s. Oh, I can't remember. Anyway, they're playing a lot of wonderful music that has... Um, and you've got those archives, don't you? Yeah, so we've got the radio programs. So that's one more kind of resource. Because a lot of stuff would have been played on there that you know, might have otherwise disappeared. Oh, absolutely. And a lot of stuff that's really hard to, you know, hasn't been re-released. Uh, it was only ever released in a really small number of pressings. Uh, so having, having the digital recordings is uh, or digitised uh, quarter-inch tapes that these were called. Uh, so basically we've got this collection uh, where a listener had religiously recorded on quarter-inch tape um, from, bef- um, from before the actual programme went to air to afterwards. These were three-hour programmes in the evening. And, you know, there's a huge amount of music on there. There's also other wonderful material, but there's also um, the music is a really interesting side. I mean, if anyone's percolating any questions in their head about any of this, you know, hold on to them because we'll, we'll move on to a bit of an audience Q&A in a, in a few minutes. Um, I wanted to talk about that tasty nightclub incident, though, and, and the, was the floozy? Yeah, because what you're talking about is, like, these really key dates in Australian kind of queer music history, you know, where, I mean, they, they were in part the, you know, consciousness-raising events, even if, you know, the, the Tasty Rage was not a positive event, but, like, it had such a huge impact, wouldn't you it say, a, Gavin? It was positive in terms of um, community awareness. So talk, talk me through what exactly happened. Well, um, in 1992, uh, I had a club called Temple, and I had a few partners there. Most of us, three-quarters of the directors of this club were gay. So we had some interesting uh, gay-themed nights and Tasty started there, um, which was in Flinders Street, just near where uh, Momo's, the restaurant is. In fact, in that stairwell. So Tasty was born there and um, we got locked out of there because suddenly landlords wanted to turn their buildings into apartments for the postcode 3000 boom. Right, so early gentrification. Early gentrification of the CBD. So we got, we found, well, I always knew about this particular venue called the Commerce Club, which um, had been an acid house club in the 80s, but by then, uh, early 90s, a, a fellow named Max Poiser who owned the Anglers Club, which had um, a gay night on Sundays. He bought this venue. Not bought it, he leased it Uh at the Commerce Club. And downstairs he built a maze, a sex maze, playroom. Uh And so I knew about that. And the the licence there being, um, I forget the name of them, but it was for members and guests. Very old-fashioned licence. Right, sure. All sorts of um, interesting loopholes with liquor. Um, the behaviour around alcohol. So, because uh, Razor was my most well-known club, was the same sort of licence, so I was attracted to those licences. So we did Tasty there because we could have sex on premises as well as a dance club. And it, was, it went through the roof. <clears throat> and contrary to what people think, that it was the sex maze that attracted the ire of the police, <laughs> it was actually... Um, oh, fuck, can I say this? Um, no, uh, somebody brought the police in because they were trying to um, shift focus from them from a drug charge, so they dobbed in all of the local people that were hanging around my club selling drugs, you know. Uh-huh. And, mean... so, and so uh, 
the police came in, uh, 52 police came in and, and uh, strip-searched everyone in the building except for my security and the manager. That was 1994 in August. And the interesting thing, we, we were absolutely, you know, it was just in shock. We were numb. And it went for seven hours or something, didn't all, it? All night. They, ca- they came in at 10 to 2 a.m. And uh, some people had their hands on their heads all night. They separated the crowd into three sections of people. Drag queens, um, men and women. And everybody was strip-searched in front of each other. Wow. And, and, you know, there were all sorts of professional people in there, including cops. There was one cop that asked my security, head of security, to sneak him out of the building because <laughs> he didn't want... <laughs> you know, I mean, all, all of the cops that were there were brought in from the outer suburbs. They weren't inner-city cops. So, anyway... Um, they were all strip searched in front of each other. It was a real violation on many levels. There was, they only had 40 pairs of gloves and they digitally searched most people with just that many gloves. Wow. So there was health concerns and human rights, you know. But the detention. upshot of it, I guess, of such an awful event, you know, such a horrible, you know, traumatising thing, was that there was anger and there was resistance and there was... Anger and resistance. And what happened? Because everybody, like by the time Sunday, the sun, six o'clock news came around on the Sunday night, the gay community had, had mobilised. And we had arranged a meeting at 9am at Joy FM, which was then in Clarendon Street in South Melbourne. And about 50 or 60 people gathered and strategised what, what to do, how to... Because this was... This was was actually a massive thing, and um, the big question mark over everything was why? Exactly. Why do that? You know, if you're just looking for drugs or whatever. And I, I, we now know that it was because um, they didn't find anything. Because I was told six weeks before this happened that we were going to be raided. Right. I was told that, and um, by people that I believed, and so we. Braced for it, and one Saturday afternoon, I was called by maybe half a dozen cops, gay cops or gay sympathisers, and they told me it is absolutely on tonight. Wow! And um, that's what happened. So it was part of an operation called Operation Nightclub, which was a broader thing about drugs in clubs, but uh, it was under that guise. But because of the media response and the way that the gay community organised around it, just after that kind of raids on nightclubs targeting gay people, basically just, you know, that was... It never happened since. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and the laws were changed for not just strip searching, but um, I, I've had many club owners still to this day um, say, oh, you know, I kind of took one for the team um, because the cops will not go into yeah. bathrooms in nightclubs in Melbourne. They do not... You know, there might be um, drug dogs, sniffer dogs yeah. at events, but they're, they're very, very uh, careful with what they do in, in entertainment areas. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, with that story, I just wanted to take the time to, to thank all of you for your, your courage, you know, in being pioneers. It didn't feel like that at the time. No. We were just living our lives and... You know, I mean, you said before, how did we find the courage? I think by denying that it was brave. I mean, I, I just didn't see the danger, frankly. 
didn't didn't feel dangerous to me. I had the women's movement around me. So in that sense, it, it wasn't brave because I didn't feel like it was dangerous. And did you inc- make sense? Counter homophobia, you know, were you prejudice, discrimination, like? Well, they were always very supportive gigs. Uh, although there I is a story, um, <laughs> the Balmain Town Hall, um, where I can't really remember the details. That was a Sheila gig, uh, 1976, I think, where someone turned off the power because they didn't like the song we were singing. And uh, it was a mixed gig and there was... um, I can't remember the other band there. The Uncle Bob Band. Uncle Bob Band, that's right. It was a benefit gig. Yeah, yeah. Um, And and we did, obviously, some of them and they they were mixed gigs... And um, it was shocking to us because the fact that we'd been invited to play there, we didn't really think someone was actually going to turn us off. But that's what happened. Uh, One of the songs apparently rubbed somebody up the wrong way. And so they turned the power off. And the whole thing fell apart at that point. But but that's because um, Clitoris had done something that broke the rules of the music industry, you see. (laughs) What was that? Um... Well, you played your set then. Uncle Bob played a set and then you got up to play again. And I I think that that's a bit of a (laughs) no-no. So there was a... In between the break, there was an off-record sort of agreement that you could play, but the message didn't didn't get passed along. So there was just a miscommunication. (laughs) And then someone from Uncle Bob band just pulled the plug. But I love what happened at the end of that gig. Um, you all sat in the circle, all the women sat in the circle, a protest circle in the middle of the Bauman Town Hall in protest. <laughs> and, and there's a beautiful audio recording at the, held at the National Film and Sound Archive of that night. Yes, and you can really hear where it descends into chaos that wow. night. Um, and then somebody from the audience yells out, this is all patriarchal bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> we loved a bit of chaos. Well, we've been talking for for an hour and it's been wonderful and I just wanted to know if anyone... I can run out with a microphone if anyone has anything they want to ask. Any of these five fantastic speakers? Well, you can. Thank you. Um, It's probably more a comment than a question, but I found it interesting when you were talking, uh, like, one, about the lack of uh, gay men's music, but I wondered, like, because obviously, as far as I knew, some of the women's bands played at a lot of... uh, It was part of how they got exposure was through uh, uh, lots of political activities. Um, And... I was trying to remember for myself about, like, during the AIDS time, uh, I couldn't think that music became a big... uh, There was a lot written, but there wasn't much happening particularly apart from um, uh, dance music. There wasn't live music coming out of that. Do you you know any differently, like Nick or...? Um, Certainly I'm, I'm not as familiar with any live music within the context of, uh, like, the benefits or um, most of those. Most of the performance in terms of the benefits 
uh, were DJs and yes. more drag performance or were more in the popular realm. So looking yeah. at um, uh, theatrical or others, it was, you know, you started getting high profile, uh, the AIDS Trust, um, you know, you had who were Ida Butros and all of these people who were... Who were performing? Oh, well, not performing. I mean, they were they were engaging and they were promoting those kind of events. Um, you know, Sydney and, and Perth have long had a long theatrical charity events, which more touch on the kind of theatre musical scene than they do with the kind of live music scene. Mm-hmm. Although here we go. I just wanted to point out this one record that I got recently. It's um, out loving, out living, out lasting. I played it earlier in it. All royalties from this record are donated to the AIDS Council of New South Wales. Um, it's quite got cheesy. Fields. It's, it's got it's got Vanetta Fields singing. She was a '80s kind of session musician. Rick Price, another kind of '80s rock star, sings on the other side. And it's produced by the people from uh, what were they called? Um, Wawani. So very '80s uh, cheesy document, but but kind of with kind of out. Uh, Gay pride lyrics and, and, yeah, AIDS Council donation. But, yeah, I don't know if anyone bought it. I've only ever seen this one copy, so I don't think it raised very much money. you'll have to remix it. And um, you'll have to remix it. I can remix that. There was some. um, I know that George Huxley was performing as a cabaret artist in the early 80s in Melbourne, openly gay, with um, quite subversive content. Uh, George Huxley and International Velvet. There was also a bit later... I was going to ask, did you come across Deaf Effects? In any Deaf Effects were mostly gay and very pop- really popular in Melbourne and Sydney. They were like an industrial electronic dance thing. Is that one of their songs? Oh, you're good. And uh, yeah, Jandy, the singer, was transsexual, transgender, M to F. Yeah, and. And really, really popular, Jandy. Yeah. So, um, am I outing her? I've just suddenly thought. I don't think so. No, no. Celebrated for that. We all knew that. So, and um, Fred White, who was a bit of a keyboardist in the band, openly gay. Yeah, they were really, yeah, cool. Yeah, I mean, I've only got a couple of records by men. There's the there's um, Wayne Harris. There's also a guy who came along not till the 80s, I think the late 80s or early 90s, called Peter Hicks from uh, Tasmania, of all places, um, who was singing really political songs about being male and gay. Um, I don't know how far his music went, but he was playing around the folk scene for quite a few years. He's um, covered on... Um, there's, a, there's an American uh, queer music historian uh, called uh, J.D. Roger... J.D. Doyle, sorry... Um, so he did a, um, he's had a, or for about 15 years he had a radio program called Queer Music Heritage and he did an Australian um, program which has some wonderful material, um, which is how I came across a, a number of things, um, but it includes a lot of the Peter Hicks material, uh, which is fantastic. Um, but seriously, check it out and if you, it's just, he's got his own website and there's uh, other songs and other programs, so if you just do a search you can find more stuff there. I uh, admit I came in a little late and maybe missed it, but all oh, right. I uh, am very interested to hear what some of this younger generation that is sitting around us uh, may be experiencing today with the making of music and the experience of music and venues. 
I think it's been great what you guys have been saying, but you're kind of nearer my generation. And I look down around me and there's a lot of people a lot younger than me and I'd love to hear if one of them would tell us what it's like today. And also, Guy is also releasing, I guess, as well, uh, other contemporary music. No, but in the sense of what's coming through the chapter music and also, you know, we've also had conversations around the trans music city in Melbourne, you know, so you're also familiar with what's, what's Neil? Um, I can say something about trans noise music. Please do. Um, that there, there's about <clears throat> maybe 12 to maybe 15 to 18 trans femmes and trans women making noise music in Melbourne at the moment, which is, I think, a lot. <laughs> and have all... And, like, many of them have just moved to Melbourne in the last two or three years... And so there's relatively regularly trans femme noise gigs happen. Um, I don't know, maybe like there's at least one a month maybe. Sometimes there's multiple in a week. Um, Yeah, do you think it's right to say that at the moment there's a a real trans musical movement in Melbourne because that's... And maybe more in Melbourne than in other parts of Australia, because that seems to be the, you know, my impression, our impression at Chapter. Yeah, I think there's like a a, um, combination of all of the factors with like Melbourne's live music um, history um, and access to venues that's maybe there's better access to venues for, like, weird music and queer music and trans music and stuff than many other places in Australia. But also I think a lot of trans people are moving to Melbourne, um, especially within the last three years. Um, Yeah, the numbers of trans people moving to Melbourne, but also the numbers of people coming out as trans has just exploded. And so... And then the same sort of thing, like, finding each other finding out that they're into similar music and deciding to start a band or some sort of project together. Well, yeah, I'm yeah. sure there's, you know, a whole... You know, we've only scratched the surface, but, you know, there's people that we're aware of, like Habits and Simona Castricum and Two Steps on the Water. They're all Melbourne trans artists who are, you know, doing really interesting things, and it seems like there is just, you know, a, a scene here, which, you know, not a word you use... Easily, but you know, comfortably, but yeah, I think that seems to be what's going on. Um, so there's music and there's sound and there's noise, um, and sound is like the vibrations in the air, and um, music is putting those sounds together in some way that sounds, you know, what um, you can dance to it, or it's like you know, it's like aesthetically pleasing or whatever. Um, is enjoyable to play with other people Um, and noise is more like uh, not necessarily I don't know sorry I've attempted the impossible but (laughs) it's like noise music is noise noises 
sounds in the world but made into like a way that's aesthetically pleasing but not to everybody, to maybe only a few people. But perhaps if I could just jump in here too, because I think that you've raised a really fantastic question, like what is queer music? Like, oh, did you say noise? Oh, I thought you said tra- um, trans music. Because um, I, I, th- I think what is trans music? That's a good question as well. And what is queer music? Because I think that there is um, plenty of people who think that sexuality, gender and sexuality, has nothing to do with music. And the two should be kept quite apart. Um, but there are plenty of other people who, like myself, who actually believe that music, um, there's an interpretive framework to music and music has always got a political context. So perhaps it's really interesting to hear that there's lots of trans performers moving to Melbourne, be- perhaps because of that supportive network that might be available. But, but it sort of does still pivot on ideas that we might have about being out or finding each other, you know, have, finding that network um, to make that mu- music, to produce that music, I think. So I think that's a really interesting question. I just want to talk about the venues. I, you know, I grew up in Western Australia, so you've been talking Sydney, Melbourne. Sydney and Melbourne. Sorry, thank you. I'll correct my microphone technique, Judy. Um, uh, coming out in the 1980s, and I was a high school teacher, so very closeted, and the only real venue we had to have fun was the Sunday session at the Stockade Bar in the Leaderville Hotel between four and seven. And that was run by a collective. And that collective used to meet in my living room. And it drove me insane. Um, I'm not a person for collectives. But um, that experience was the only safe place that we had to go to where we would, A, be with other women. Um, It was always, obviously, it was a private venue. But also we would hear women's music. So it was a combination of uh, whatever was top of the charts that happened to be women-identified... And then we would have other stuff, whether it be uh, Chris or Meg or Judy or somebody else at the time, that would also be a strong component of it. So it was that mix of party and politics and we always ended with sisters are doing it for themselves at the end of the night. So it's that weird combination. But you're talking about diversity as well. We had a slightly stronger presence of Indigenous women participating in those sessions. Um, And so titters was big for us. And uh, it also mixed class. And I know, you know, coming up through the 80s as a lesbian, class issues were discussed, discussed at length, again, with collectives that met in my living room. I was never a member of the collective, it was just my girlfriend at the time. Um, but that was also an issue when we came to our music venues as well, as to what was being played and how did it reflect on class. So it was a, it was a weird mix in that 80s of what we were actually doing, where we could go... I think licensing laws chains have, have made a difference as to where you go. There aren't women's venues anymore. You, don't, you just don't have them. Um, so we've kind of lost a bit of that space. And maybe that's why we also don't quite have the same women's identified music. Just wanted to put in about the early 90s... Um, I was coming out as a lesbian then and I was also hanging out with gay men and so I was on the gay dance scene rather than where all the women were that I potentially wanted to meet were not with me. I was going to dance parties with the straight girls and the gay guys and um, 
yeah, I was a little bit of a novelty in that sense. But, yeah, definitely for me, so my influences in terms of sexuality and stuff were things like Kylie and Madonna and, and dance music. Yeah. Anyway, just putting that in. <laughs> I mean, it's fantastic to know that one of the world's biggest gay camp icons, you know, is from Australia. I mean, Kylie, we should all be very proud of that. I, was, I just want to say that was really cool, your answer before. And brave, attempting about the, with the definitions of noise and music and sound. And, and also point out, I, I was living for the last couple of years, I, I just moved down to St Kilda, but I was living above Hares and Hyenas, the bookshop, and their performance space at night has an amazing range of um, events that, that go on, obviously queer-oriented, but... Um, in particular, they're interested in um, transgender artists and, and content. So that, that's actually a real scene. And, and, of course, the whole area, there's many venues in that district, but, but Hairs and Hyenas is... is I, I, I actually think they're quite advanced and um, a vital part of the scene in Melbourne. And Melbourne's incredible when it comes to the whole... You know, it's like a, it's like a, a flame <laughs> to all the moths. You know, everyone's coming here. So it's great. It's really, really good. Pardon? So it's not all Sydney. It's a good thing. You just happened to invite three women from Sydney mm-hmm. this afternoon. Um, well, you're all living I don't in... know how that happened, but we all live in Melbourne now, but I think. Yes, but um, back in the day... Sorry, I'd like to make a comment about the Melbourne scene in the early 80s to mid-90s. And starting off your thing about the collective. So in the 80s, I was involved with my friends Tracy Wall and Leslie Crofts and others in a thing called the Caviar Club. I'm not sure if there's anyone here. I know whoever, all about fabulous. <laughs> whoever went to one of those events. So basically we were a girl group DJ crew. We couldn't play musical instruments. Um, so we decided to start our own. Um, and there was that divide between the working class lesbians who'd all go to bars, which we loved... And the university lesbians who put on all those amazing women's dances with bands like Hysteria and all these other bands, I can't remember. You might remember some of them. And that was one of our mission, was to try to combine those two groups of women to have a really good time and enjoy, basically, club music. So we played DJing for a very long time in illegal and legal venues around town um, I can't list the name of the bands, but we did have Don Odetti, who was with Jandy Rainbow, one of the Rainbow, very, yes. very early trans performers in Melbourne. Yeah. We were happy to have her as a women's club. We also were one of those clubs that integrated men and women very early on in 1986 and 7. Um, went on to then DJ for groups like ACT UP in the activism world. We took over Steamworks, the gay men's sauna, at one stage for three events. Um, so, um, and I think Fiona was probably involved in some back-end technician work. Um, so, you know, I think the from the early 80s to late 80s were a very critical time for, well, myself and my friends. But we have kept none of that paraphernalia. We kept no posters, very little. We were too busy having a good time... <laughs> And, um, and really trying to do stuff with gay men as well, as well as women. We even had childcare. That's how good we were as a collective. <laughs> you, girl, you girls were amazing, actually. I remember, because I, I know Tracy, 
um, and, and worked with Tracy on things in particular. You know, I, I just wanted to say, when I was talking about the also parties in the 90s, Tracy Wall is who was the producer of, of the best parties of the era, in my opinion, and I worked quite closely with her uh, choosing other DJs to, to make sure that it was curated fully from start to finish and stuff. But I, I actually think that Tracy is um, a bit of a hero in the, in the sense that she made so many good choices and in particular a man named Richie McNeil who ended up owning um, Stereosonic and hardware and, and massive, massive influential um, straight dance events and still is influential. He still has things. But um, he hooked up with Tracy and so in order to save money... Tracy and also would do the Saturday night Red Raw or Winter Days or Resurrection at Easter. And on the night before or the night after, Richie would do a rave. And so my point earlier was going to be that the gay culture, the gay dance rave culture, actually brought the straight culture forward by years by giving it that platform, that actual... the, the, the mechanism to present those amazingly large things rather than just small underground things. The scene was there, but this was large scale. So I loved your comments. <laughs> the archives, this is the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives, has a few flyers and we'd have community papers, um, but, yeah, very, very little, unfortunately. Um, I was also going to say, because it didn't really fit in anywhere else, um, one of the collections I'm working on at the moment is a collection of 1940s uh, correspondence. It's a few hundred letters from uh, a, a camp man and his correspondence. Um, camp being the word used prior to 1970, not gay in Australia, principally. Um, there was an called, there was, then there was an organisation called Camp and it stood mm. for Campaign Against Moral Persecution. Oh. Um, but although prior to 1970 it was often spelt with a K rather than a C in that context. Um, but one of the really wonderful things is amongst this collection is, you know, uh, references to how to, hold, uh, how to hold a great camp party. Um, there's also full lists of recordings. And one of the things about a lot of these private parties, you're also talking about a time uh, when uh, the bars closed at six, the pubs closed at six... Um, and, and women weren't generally allowed off into the public bars as well. Uh, so a lot of the kind of camp scene uh, happened in people's houses. So you'd be going into uh, the... If you're in the know, you'd be going into the side bar or the back bar, and then at 6 o'clock um, people would go to certain people's houses, you'd talk to each other out the, you know, once it had finished or before, and you'd go to houses for these parties. For a lot of these parties, the gramophone and jazz music swing, uh, a lot of these uh, uh, records, which were principally from America, were the centre of these camp parties. So there's a lot uh, also there in terms of different periods where, you know, there might not be the overtly queer music. There was often a lot of musicals, so uh, recordings from musicals and uh, musicals and uh, the foyers of the theatres and the cinemas were a really key space for camp uh, people at that time. So you, there's a, there, is a, there is a prehistory as well uh, to some of this uh, when you're talking about uh, camp music, not in a kind of overtly queer music uh, context, but, you know, there is a lot more that well, Music that was always to... still a part of people's queer lives. Well, sorry to interrupt, but Graydon, do you have to slip away? You've got another appointment. I, thank you very, very much for, for, for coming. And uh, 
If you have to go, maybe now's the time, but a round of applause Thank if you. anyone. Thanks very much. If anyone has any other questions, you know, take one or, one or two more. Thanks, Graydon. Thank you. Um, I don't really know if my question is fully formed, so sorry if it's not. Um, but, Judy, I grew up listening to your music. <laughs> I'm really not, actually. Um, and I guess, I don't know if I'm just really cynical, but I guess I wanted you to ask you about the folk scene and especially the f- political and queer and feminist folk scene because I guess I don't see that being such a big thing in it anymore, which makes me really sad. And I wondered if, like, that was something that you see as well or how, and also how the folk scene was inclusive or not inclusive back in the day as well. Well, as I said right at the beginning, I think, um, the folk scene was inclusive as long as I didn't sing about being gay. Being gay was fine. They didn't care whether I was gay or not. But once I started singing about it, then it became an issue. Um, But, gee... I, I'm, I'm, I'm probably not the person to ask. I mean, I haven't, I haven't been part of the folk music scene in a, in a really involved sense for nearly a decade now. Um, but you're right. I don't hear of uh, uh, any young queer bands, for instance, but I suspect that that's because it doesn't matter anymore. And I'm hoping that's the case. I'm hoping that, um, you know, the being queer and singing about that stuff is just so much part of it that they don't care anymore. Um, and it's not a matter for comment. And frankly, from my perspective, and speaking only for myself, um, that's what I want. I want it to be not even a matter of comment that we play that music and that we are those people and that we have that culture um, any more than it is being, you know, Greek or Vietnamese or whatever. I mean, I I think certainly in a more pop culture, a pop music sense, I mean, you've got certainly got prominent performers like Troy Sivan and others uh, who, you know, are internationally recognised... Um, and certainly over the last 15 to 20 years in the pop scene, there's probably been many more who are openly singing and openly, you know, gay, queer. But you're right. I mean, I think the times were different, you know, when you were growing up and I was playing music when I first started to do that. The times were very different, and music for us was very much part of our liberation. Um, It was very much part of, um, you know, the process of looking at feminist issues and uh, where we sat in the world and where we wanted to sit in the world. It was always part of that. What you're saying, Judy, is the same... I mean, what this guy, woman, person beside me, the trans person said, uh, was, I think, an illustration of that. The newer issues that people are facing. You didn't have trannies around when you were doing that. You do now, and I'm delighted to have this person sitting beside me, and I'm sorry I've sort of gobbled that up in the wrong way, and apologies, uh, madam. Uh, I really don't know, but it's just brilliant that people like you are prepared to try to explain to us, who are so out of date, where it's at now. And the whole concept of queer I really love. We didn't have a concept of queer. It was very binary back then. You were either straight or you were gay. And I just love the whole concept of queer. I think it's fascinating. Um, I just want to say something quickly that attaches to, like, camp. Um, 
culture in Melbourne specifically. I read something in a book about cam culture um, that that um, about how when apartments started to emerge, um, it gave people like an indoor private space where they could cross-dress or experiment with their sexuality or hold parties and that kind of thing. Um, and I mentioned that in the context of, like, that's been a really important function, like share houses and, and shared apartments and, and stuff in Melbourne for decades. Um, but that I think it's becoming increasingly difficult to maintain, um, like, safe and stable housing situations for young queer and trans people um, just to live as people, let alone have a stable enough space to be able to do interesting things with it, like have have gigs and have events and have meetings and all that kind of stuff. Um, I just want to mention that as like a, a thing that I, I feel like often an older generation... Um, whether it's like activists or queers or whatever, um, don't seem to, or my parents, like don't seem to understand like how precarious people's living situations are and how low New Start is proportionally to what it was in the mid-70s to the mid-80s and um, how it's impossible to get on DSP anymore, even though prior to 2007 you could get on disability support pension just by with a diagnosis of um, having um, gender dysphoria and all this kind of stuff. Um, there's, there's a, my point is there's a lot of really young queer and trans people in Melbourne that are really struggling with really basic stuff like access to healthcare and housing and this sort of stuff um, who could otherwise be making amazing music. It's, it's That's a, a really, it's a good really point. important point because if you're looking at the emergence of the camp scene uh, in in Melbourne, it, it was actually really critical. So if you're looking at places like St Kilda and the emergence of, um, particularly during the 1930s, the types of housing uh, that provided for... So moving away from things like the rooming houses or moving away from uh, organisations uh, who did boarding houses or others into the kinds of uh, apartment models that supported uh, single... Uh, single people and, and couples in different ways rather than the houses, um, uh, you really see the start of the emergence of, of kind of a more um, organised uh, kind of camp bar scene. So places like the Prince of Wales, which we've got references in oral histories back to the 1930s, um, you know, as a scene. And, and a lot of that came with the building boom in St Kilda in the 1930s in a very similar way to St Kil- uh, King's Cross, um, kind of, you know, in the same kind of period. Well, thank you very, 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 very much for, for coming. I think uh, unless anyone's got any more burning questions that they want to ask, you know, I think we'll, we will give our vocal cords a rest. And I'd just like to say thank you very much to Nick and to Judy, to Kathy and to Gavin and to Graydon in absentia. Um, thanks to M Pavilion for having us. Um, ben and I are going to play just a handful of records. You can come up and look at anything that we've, we've brought in our crate. We've got the Australian and international kind of 70s, 80s queer records for you to rifle through. Um, but, yeah, thank you very much for coming and thank you very much for talking. Thank you.